Section One of Notes on Nursing by Florence Nightingale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Section One: Ventilation and Warming. The very first canon of nursing, the first and the last thing upon which a nurse's attention must be fixed, the first essential to a patient, without which all the rest you can do for him is as nothing. With which I had almost said, you may leave all the rest alone, is this: to keep the air he breathes as pure as the external air, without chilling him. Yet what is so little attended to? Even where it is thought of at all, the most extraordinary misconceptions reign about it. Even in admitting air into the patient's room or ward, few people ever think where that air comes from. It may come from a corridor. Into which other wards are ventilated, from a hall always unaired, always full of the fumes of gas, dinner, of various kinds of mustiness, from an underground kitchen, sink, washhouse, water closet, or even, as I myself have had sorrowful experience, from open sewers loaded with filth, and with this, the patient's room or ward is aired, as it is called. Poisoned, it should rather be said. Always air from the air without, and that too, through those windows through which the air comes freshest. From a closed court, especially if the wind do not blow that way, air may come as stagnant as any from a hall or corridor. Again, a thing I have often seen both in private houses and institutions: a room remains uninhabited. The fireplace is carefully fastened up with a board. The windows are never opened. Probably the shutters are kept always shut. Perhaps some kind of stores are kept in the room. No breath of fresh air can, by possibility, enter into that room, nor any ray of sun. The air is as stagnant, musty, and corrupt as it can, by possibility, be made. It is quite ripe to breed smallpox, scarlet fever, diphtheria, or anything else you please. Yet the nursery, ward, or sick room adjoining, will be positively aired by having the door opened into that room, or children will be put into that room without previous preparation to sleep. A short time ago, a man walked into a back kitchen in Queen Square, and cut the throat of a poor consumptive creature sitting by the fire. The murderer did not deny the act, but simply said, "It's all right." Of course, he was mad. But in our case, the extraordinary thing is that the victim says it's all right, and that we are not mad. Yet, though he knows the murderers, in the musty, unaired, unsunned room, the scarlet fever which is behind the door, or the fever and hospital gangrene which are stalking among the crowded beds of a hospital ward, we say it's all right. With a proper supply of windows. And a proper supply of fuel in open fireplaces, fresh air is comparatively easy to secure when your patient or patients are in bed. Never be afraid of open windows. Then, people don't catch cold in bed. This is a popular fallacy. With proper bedclothes and hot bottles, if necessary, you can always keep a patient warm in bed and well ventilate him at the same time. But a careless nurse. Be her rank and education what it may, will stop up every cranny 
and keep a hot-house heat when her patient is in bed, and, if he is able to get up, leave him comparatively unprotected. The time when people take cold, and there are many ways of taking cold, besides a cold in the nose, is when they first get up, after the twofold exhaustion of dressing, and of having had the skin relaxed by many hours, perhaps days in bed, and thereby rendered more incapable of reaction. Then the same temperature which refreshes the patient in bed may destroy the patient just risen. And common sense will point out that while purity of air is essential, a temperature must be secured which shall not chill the patient, otherwise the best that can be expected will be a feverish reaction. To have the air within as pure as the air without, it is not necessary, as often appears to be thought, to make it as cold. In the afternoon again, without care, the patient whose vital powers have then risen often finds the room as close and oppressive as he found it cold in the morning, yet the nurse will be terrified if a window is opened. I know an intelligent, humane house-surgeon who makes practice of keeping the ward windows open. The physicians and surgeons invariably close them while going their rounds, and the house-surgeon very properly, as invariably, opens them whenever the doctors have turned their backs. In a little book on nursing, published a short time ago, we are told that, with proper care, it is very seldom that the windows cannot be opened for a few minutes twice in the day to admit fresh air from without. I should think not, nor twice in the hour either. It only shows how little the subject has been considered. Of all methods of keeping patients warm, the very worst, certainly, is to depend for heat on the breath and bodies of the sick. I have known a medical officer keep his ward windows hermetically closed, thus exposing the sick to all the dangers of an infected atmosphere, because he was afraid that, by admitting fresh air, the temperature of the ward would be too much lowered. This is a destructive fallacy. To attempt to keep a ward warm, at the expense of making the sick repeatedly breathe their own hot, humid, putrescing atmosphere, is a certain way to delay recovery, or to destroy life. Do you ever go into the bedrooms of any persons of any class, whether they hold one, two, or twenty people, whether they hold sick or well, at night? or before the windows are opened in the morning, and ever find the air anything but unwholesomely close and foul. And why should it be so? And of how much importance is it that it should not be so? During sleep, the human body, even when in health, is far more injured by the influence of foul air than when awake. Why can't you keep the air all night, then, as pure as the air without, in the rooms you sleep in? But for this, you must have sufficient outlet for the impure air you make yourselves to go out, sufficient inlet for the pure air from without to come in. You must have open chimneys, open windows or ventilators, no close curtains round your beds, no shutters or curtains to your windows, none of the contrivances by which you undermine your own health or destroy the chances of recovery of your sick. A careful nurse will keep a constant watch over her sick, especially weak, protracted, and collapsed cases, 
to guard against the effects of the loss of vital heat by the patient himself. In certain diseased states, much less heat is produced than in health, and there is a constant tendency to the decline and ultimate extinction of the vital powers, by the call made upon them to sustain the heat of the body. Cases where this occurs should be watched with the greatest care from hour to hour, I had almost said from minute to minute. The feet and legs should be examined by the hand from time to time, and whenever a tendency to chilling is discovered, hot bottles, hot bricks, or warm flannels, with some warm drink, should be made use of, until the temperature is restored. The fire should be, if necessary, replenished. Patients are frequently lost in the latter stages of disease from want of attention to such simple precautions. The nurse may be trusting to the patient's diet, or to his medicine, or to the occasional dose of stimulant which she is directed to give him, while the patient is all the while sinking from want of a little external warmth. Such cases happen at all times, even during the height of summer. This fatal chill is most apt to occur towards early morning, at the period of the lowest temperature of the twenty-four hours, and at the time when the effect of the preceding day's diets is exhausted. Generally speaking, you may expect that weak patients will suffer cold much more in the morning than in the evening. The vital powers are much lower. If they are feverish at night, with burning hands and feet, they are almost sure to be chilly and shivering in the morning. But nurses are very fond of heating the foot-warmer at night, and of neglecting it in the morning when they are busy. I should reverse the matter. All these things require common sense and care. Yet perhaps in no one single thing is so little common sense shown in all ranks as in nursing. The extraordinary confusion between cold and ventilation, even in the minds of well-educated people, illustrates this. To make a room cold is by no means necessary to ventilate it. Nor is it at all necessary, in order to ventilate a room, to chill it. Yet, if a nurse finds a room close, she will let out the fire, thereby making it closer. Or she will open the door into a cold room, without a fire, or an open window in it, by way of improving the ventilation. The safest atmosphere of all for a patient is a good fire and an open window, excepting in extremes of temperature. Yet no nurse can ever be made to understand this. To ventilate a small room without draughts, of course, requires more care than to ventilate a large one. Another extraordinary fallacy is the dread of night air. What air can we breathe at night but night air? The choice is between pure night air from without, and foul night air from within. Most people prefer the latter. An unaccountable choice. What will they say if it is proved to be true that fully one half of all the disease we suffer from is occasioned by people sleeping with their windows shut? An open window, most nights in the year, can never hurt anyone. This is not to say that light is not necessary for recovery. In great cities, night air is often the best and purest air to be had in the twenty-four hours. I could better understand in towns, shutting the windows during the day than during the night for the sake of the sick. The absence of smoke, 
the quiet, all tends to making night the best time for airing the patients. One of our highest medical authorities on consumption and climate has told me that the air in London is never so good as after ten o'clock at night. Always air your room then from the outside air if possible. Windows are made to open, doors are made to shut, a truth which seems extremely difficult of apprehension. I have seen a careful nurse airing her patient's room through the door, near to which were two gas lights, each of which consumes as much air as eleven men, a kitchen, a corridor, the composition of the atmosphere in which consisted of gas, paint, foul air, never changed, full of effluvia, including a current of sewer air from an ill-placed sink, ascending in a continual stream by a well staircase, and discharging themselves constantly into the patient's room. The window of the said room, if opened, was all that was desirable to air it. Every room must be aired from without, every passage from without. But the fewer passages there are in a hospital, the better. If we are to preserve the air within as pure as the air without, it is needless to say that the chimney must not smoke. Almost all smoky chimneys can be cured from the bottom, not from the top. Often it is only necessary to have an inlet for air to supply the fire, which is feeding itself, for want of this from its own chimney. On the other hand, almost all chimneys can be made to smoke by a careless nurse, who lets the fire get low, and then overwhelms it with coal. Not, as we verily believe, in order to spare herself trouble, for very rare is unkindness to the sick, but from not thinking what she is about. In laying down the principle that the first object of the nurse must be to keep the air breathed by her patient as pure as the air without, it must not be forgotten that everything in the room which can give off effluvia, besides the patient, evaporates itself into his air, and it follows that there ought to be nothing in the room excepting him which can give off effluvia or moisture. Out of all damp towels, etc., which become dry in the room, the damp, of course, goes into the patient's air. Yet this, of course, seems as little thought of as if it were an obsolete fiction. How very seldom you see a nurse who acknowledges by her practice that nothing at all ought to be aired in the patient's room, that nothing at all ought to be cooked at the patient's fire. Indeed, the arrangements often make this rule impossible to observe. If the nurse be a very careful one, she will, when the patient leaves his bed, but not his room, open the sheets wide, and throw the bedclothes back, in order to air his bed and she will spread the wet towels or flannels carefully out upon a horse, in order to dry them. Now, either these bedclothes and towels are not dried and aired, or they air and dry themselves into the patient's air. And whether the damp and effluvia do him most harm in his air, or in his bed, I leave you to determine, for I cannot. Even in health, People cannot repeatedly breathe air in which they live with impunity, on account of it becoming charged with unwholesome matter from the lungs and skin. In disease, where everything given off from the body is highly noxious and dangerous, 
not only must there be plenty of ventilation to carry off the effluvia, but everything which the patient passes must be instantly removed away, as being more noxious than even the emanations from the sick. Of the fatal effects of the effluvia from the excretia, it would seem unnecessary to speak, were they not so constantly neglected. Concealing the utensils behind the valance to the bed seems all the precaution which is thought necessary for safety in private nursing. Did you but think for one moment of the atmosphere under that bed, the saturation of the underside of the mattress with the warm evaporations, you would be startled and frightened too. The use of any chamber utensil without a lid should be utterly abolished, whether among sick or well. You can easily convince yourself of the necessity of this absolute rule by taking one with a lid and examining the underside of that lid. It will be found always covered, whenever the utensil is not empty, by condensed offensive moisture. Where does that go when there is no lid? Earthenware, or if there is any wood, highly polished and varnished wood, are the only materials fit for patients' utensils. The very lid of the old abominable clothes-stool is enough to breed a pestilence. It becomes saturated with offensive matter, which scouring is only wanting to bring out. I prefer an earthenware lid as being always cleaner, but there are various good new-fashioned arrangements. A slop-pail should never be bought into a sick-room. It should be a rule invariable, rather more important in the private house than elsewhere, that the utensil should be carried directly to the water-closet, emptied there, rinsed there, and brought back. There should always be water and a cock in every water-closet for rinsing, but even if there is not, you must carry water there to rinse with. I have actually seen, in the private sick-room, the utensils emptied into the footpan and put back unrinsed under the bed. I can hardly say which is most abominable, whether to do this or to rinse the utensil in the sick-room. In the best hospitals it is now a rule that no slop-pail shall ever be brought into the wards, but that the utensils should be carried direct to be emptied and rinsed at the proper place. I would it were so in the private house. Let no one ever depend on fumigations, disinfectants and the like, for purifying the air. The offensive thing, not its smell, must be removed. A celebrated medical lecturer began one day. Fumigations, gentlemen, are of essential importance. They make such an abominable smell that they compel you to open the window. I wish all the disinfecting fluids invented made such an abominable smell that they forced you to omit fresh air. That would be a useful invention. End of section one.